Hello, everyone. Welcome to our weekly Q&A Dhamma session. Today, I thought we'd do a little meditating together. I've been asked again to do a meditation session with the Tourism Authority of Thailand. So we'll be doing that. This next week. have to record a video for them and then we'll be doing live we'll be doing a live stream people can join so today i thought we would meditate together So come on in, close your eyes. Take up a posture that allows you to be at rest, but be alert and focus on your body and your mind. Today in the study group, we we read a sutta by Sariputta, a discourse by the Venerable Sariputta, the Buddha's chief disciple, who took up the Buddha's teaching and expanded upon it, showing that every aspect of the Buddha's teaching is like a fractal that can be magnified and expanded upon, and that it all ends up being a part of ordinary experience. When we think about the Buddha, we think about how the Buddha encouraged us to relate to experience, to free our minds from greed and anger and delusion. We remember the Buddha as a pure example an example of purity, an example of the experience of reality, simply as it is without judgment or reaction or bias or skew in his perception. 
when we think of the Dhamma, we think of reality, we think of truth, think of what is. The Dhamma of the Buddha was not his beliefs, his theories, his philosophies. It was his discoveries, his understanding, his knowledge. When we think about the Sangha, the followers of the Buddha, we think of those who have meditated. When we think of ourselves emulating, following in the footsteps of those who have practiced rightly. We think of living up to the ideal of pure being, living with a clear mind. And above all, we focus on our own mundane experience. To become one who sees the truth sees sees reality who sees the Dhamma someone who sees the Dhamma the Buddha said yo dhammang pasati does it mean to see the Dhamma does it mean to believe it doesn't mean to understand it rationally Buddha said see the Dhamma see his teachings goes beyond knowledge in an intellectual realm. It involves knowing for yourself because you've seen. So today let's just spend a little time together. We'll go for about 10 minutes just practicing together.
slowly open your eyes or keep them closed as you prefer, but now we can move on to taking questions. So if you have questions, feel free to type them into the into the chat. With me today are Chris and we have Ulu and Olivia. Be helping us to organize and ask the questions. But by all means, if you don't have questions, or if you've asked your question, just close your eyes and continue to meditate with us. We can meditate and listen. Our mind is not capable of doing two things at once, but it is capable of switching activities very quickly. So in between our thinking and in between our listening for comprehension, we can listen for understanding. Practicing together like this is a valuable exercise. It's not something we should depend upon. We should be able to practice on our own. But it's really the, the best way to come together as a group, to provide encouragement to remind us that we're not alone. To appreciate the plausibility of practice that it is possible. We see others doing it. We feel not alone. We feel encouraged and supported in our practice. We, we fulfill the qualifications as a group of the word Sangha. And even though we come to the practice not as an Arya, but as a Putujana, as an ordinary world worldling person with misunderstandings and delusions and ignorance. But because of our intentions in the right direction, we become kalyana, we become, the Buddha said, kalyana putujana, an ordinary person, but not so ordinary because of our beauty, our beautiful mind, our beautiful intention to see things clearly. So we'll take questions, see how many there are, maybe slow, slow coming is fine. We'll just take it slow. I'm ready whenever you are, Chris. Okay, let's begin. What does it mean to note with discernment? Does discernment mean absence of thoughts? Discernment means absence of delusion. Discernment means a strength of mind. Discernment is something that you don't have when you begin to meditate. You're not able to discern the qualities of things 
you need some experience. And so through the process of systematic, repeated observation, you begin to discern. And your, your noting has a power to it. There seems such a banality to noting things like rising, falling, but if and when you ever can note with discernment, where you really just know rising is rising, falling is falling, with a clarity and a purity and an objectivity that you cultivate, that you've cultivated over the, throughout the practice. If you can never attain that state of discernment, that discernment that breaks free from samsara, that causes the mind to relinquish its grasp, that discernment which frees the mind from suffering, allows one to experience true cessation of suffering, true peace, true freedom. So it doesn't have anything to do with thoughts per se, but it doesn't necessarily mean the absence of thought, it means the absence of delusion the absence of ignorance or misunderstanding. For one who is not scholarly, or one who is not inclined towards studying the scriptures, is it correct to say that their faith in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha can guide their practice? I'm not sure that faith is something that can really guide you. Faith is a dangerous thing as a guide because it's a certainty. So if the faith isn't based on wisdom, faith is less of a guide than it is a, a leader. Faith is leading the charge. It has a power to it. But take a leader of an army. The leader of the army is able to organize the troops. But even a leader needs a guide to tell them, give them directions for where to go, where to lead the army. Faith is ready to lead the charge, but wisdom knows which way the enemy lies knows how to, which way to march. So I wouldn't take your faith in the Buddha, the Dhamma Sangha as a guide. It's, it's a useful quality, but it has to be coupled with wisdom on all levels. So there has to be some understanding intellectually of the Buddha's teaching insofar as it involves understanding of practice, how to practice. It's quite simple, really. You don't need a lot of intellectual understanding.
that faith has to be guided by the knowledge of how to practice and 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 as you progress it's guided faith is guided by the understanding that you gain the the proficiency the skill of the mind as the mind becomes more familiar with reality it gets better at being present being objective being free from defilement and thus free from suffering and which of course in turn increases our faith because it no longer relies on speculation or conjecture or belief it it has as its base the experience of things as they are So don't be discouraged. It's certainly not about scholasticism or any studying of the scriptures. That's one way of gaining the intellectual understanding you need, but it's not the most efficient way. The most efficient is to find a teacher to provide you with practical instruction on how to see the things the Buddha taught for yourself. And let your let your confidence in that teaching guide you, not guide you, but propel you with with the teaching as a guide, you see. And then your face and faith increases and that propels you and keeps you on track keeps you keeps you going faith keeps you going wisdom keeps you going in the right direction so wisdom's more of the guide how should we be mindful of having fun is it technically a combination of happy and liking Yes, that's pretty perceptive, I think. What we call fun involves liking and it involves happiness. So happiness is not a problem, but liking is a problem. Liking becomes addictive and it leads to negligence and what we call intoxication. The mind is not perceptive. It's not alert or aware or awake distracted and addicted and inclined towards seeking out things that can't satisfy. Someone told me I should not do meditation because I am not spiritually stable and that demons can attach to me because of this. What is your advice about this? Well, I can't comment on your situation. It may be that you have issues that issues of spiritual instability. Um, it's not really how I would describe things. It's 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 dangerous to use words like spirituality or or spiritual stability. 
that's even worse, I think, to delve into the world of demons. I don't think we should ever be concerned with demons. I don't think we should be concerned with demons that might attach to us. What we should be concerned with is our state of mind. And my general advice for people is that meditation isn't something you undertake. I mean, this should be obvious, but it, it often isn't. Meditation isn't something that you should undertake because you are things like spiritually stable or calm, quiet. Sometimes people's complaint is that they couldn't meditate, couldn't imagine meditating because they're not calm enough. They can't settle, they're not settled down enough. And that's, of course, a misunderstanding of what we mean when we talk about meditation. Meditation is a training to cultivate that sort of spiritual stability, mental stability, the mental peace of mind is a part of the ultimate goal. And the practice isn't ever expected to be peaceful or stable. It's meant to be chaotic as you look at how the mind works. The mind often works in quite a chaotic manner and it's not something you're ever necessarily going to liberate yourself from. What you're going to liberate yourself from is not the chaos. It's the, the reactions to it. Samsara, experience, life is chaotic. So don't be discouraged when you, there's not stability. Don't be discouraged even when your mind is apparently the mind of an insane person. You often feel as you practice that your mind is not, it's unwieldy, it's not manageable. So never, never really be discouraged when there's instability of mind, when it appears that you have craziness inside. Don't even be discouraged if you're assaulted by demons. Some people hear voices, some people see things. Sometimes it's it's hard to pass it off as hallucinations. But hallucinations or reality, it's not really, uh, there's not really a difference. Because underpinning it all is our experience and our reactions to that experience. No matter whether we consider it to be real or imaginary hallucination, none of that really has any bearing on truth, which is that this is an experience. Either way, it's the same. So we note to ourselves seeing and hearing. If you're afraid or worried, you note that. If you like or dislike, you note that. Meditation is about cultivating spiritual stability. So don't think of lack of that as being a reason not to meditate. In fact, quite the opposite. Lack of stability is a re reason why meditation is so important. Because without it, you just go on living your life in lots of bad ways, you know, doing things that hurt you and hurt others. 
because of your instability. You really need to meditate. You need mindfulness if you're ever going to find spiritual stability. I have moved to a different country due to a demanding job, so I stopped the course in the tenth week. I could not practice two hours a day anymore. Would it be possible to get back on track and finish the course? Yes. Yes, we don't really have a hard and fast rule there. We do have a very strict rule so far about the time. Now, two hours a day is what we expect you to get to at the end of the course. So probably at that point I was telling you you should be working up to it. But even at the beginning of the course, you have to be prepared to work up to that. You can't be in a situation where you're not going to be able to do two hours a day. So it's good to wait until you have the opportunity. I mean, continue to meditate, but wait once you have the opportunity to be able to do an hour a day and work up to two hours a day, then you can continue on. You can just continue where we left off. The at-home course isn't like the the intensive course, but even the intensive course, when you come to our center and practice intensively, even that can be potentially continued. Even that can be split up into segments. Really, the most important thing is that you keep up mindfulness, even even when you're not on a course. Is noting liking, calm, and disliking equivalent to the experiences of pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant? I was talking. I'll ask again. Is noting yeah. liking, calm, and disliking equivalent to the experiences of pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant? Sorry, I think I was muted. Um, no, they're not equivalent. So you can experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings without liking and disliking. Now, when you're neutral, a neutral feeling and calm, yes, those are equivalent. But liking and disliking are reactions. Now, there are certain pleasant experiences that are accompanied by liking. And there are certain unpleasant experiences that are accompanied by disliking. But that's not always the case. It's not necessarily the case. 
so it's important that we separate our notings. If you like something, note the liking, but if you're just happy, just note happy. If there's pleasure, you can say pleasure. If there's pain, you can say pain. It's not necessarily a disliking of the pain, of course. As a beginner, that often seems like it would be impossible. You can get to an experience where there's only pain without disliking of it. As in sports, I think it's common for people to experience pain without disliking, just because the mind is set in such a way as it's not phased by it. It's it's actually a little bit heady or high on, on the adrenaline and so on. So the pain is experienced just as pain. Now in meditation, we it's quite different from uh, athleticism, but the state of mind, the frame of mind is, is very similar because of the acceptance. And a great strength there. I often feel inferior to other people or ashamed of myself because of constant comparison and low self-esteem. What is the proper way to note this? Well, note the, the shame, that's a big one. The sadness or the disliking or the depression or whatever. But a big part of low self-esteem, I mean, low self-esteem is conceit. It's the, the opposite of how we normally understand conceit. Conceit being pride and, and, and high self-esteem. But any kind of esteem of self, whether it's high or low, is always is, is the same mindset. It's based on the same delusions about self, the same clinging to or or perversion of reality into twisting reality into a a me and a mine it's the, it's our it's a way of looking at things that adds uh, adds non-existent value to things this is me, this is mine, this is, I'm, I'm better than someone, I'm worse than someone, good, I'm bad. See, the, the Buddhism and non-self is not really about whether there is or isn't a self or a soul or an ego, it's about our perspective. It's about having a perspective that's really based on reality without all this baggage of this is me and I am this and I'm better and worse and whatever. Self-esteem is just extra baggage. Low self-esteem, high self-esteem. And because it's delusion, it's not exactly something you can note. It's rather something that goes away as you note because it is a, a, a delusion. It is an obscurity, it is a darkness, and a blindness. Conceit can only exist 
in conjunction with ignorance and misunderstanding. A, a skewed perception, a perception that has nothing to do with reality. It's not based on reality that we gain conceit. There's no reality in the I am better, I am worse. These are just our own mental machinations. So you don't you don't necessarily have to be concerned with noting it. You can note things like knowing when you're aware that you are conceited or so on. And of course, note any reactions to it. But ultimately, the conceit goes away as your clarity of mind comes. It's conceit is a it's one of the later ones to disappear completely. So I wouldn't be too discouraged by it. It's one that's very deep and very challenging to overcome. But slowly but surely, as your clarity of mind improves, the conceit has no rest. It has no place to, no, no purchase in the mind. How do I note or choose what to note when the sensations get very fast? Sometimes I don't have the time to say the words in my mind. No, don't let them bully you. Don't let experiences bully you. They're not in charge. You are. Take your time. Pick something. If there's lots of somethings, just pick something. And if if you, if they're really too quick to be mindful of something, then just note the, the quickness. If your mind is restless or distracted, note that. It's chaotic, note that you can say chaos, chaos, or overwhelmed if you're overwhelmed, knowing if you're aware, just aware that it's so fast. Just to be, uh, note the awareness, knowing, knowing. It's just a reaffirmation. Yep, it's like that. And we, we, we reaffirm things with our noting is, is because we want to avoid any kind of judgment or reaction. So don't let your mind start to react like, oh, this is a problem. What am I going to do? No, it's not the problem. It's an experience. Just try and note the experience. Don't let, don't let reality bully you. That's where strength comes from. When you look it in the eye and you stare it down and you don't blink. How do we make the jump to avoiding the pitfalls that taper the benefits of meditation while we don't have the wisdom to make some of these jumps outside of the intellectual? Is there a leap of faith? I don't think there ever has to be a leap of faith, no. There has to be a bit of a suspending of judgment. But that's with anything you undertake. You have to try things when you know, meditation is something new. So you have to take, inevitably in anything, there's that, that much of a leap of faith. It's not a leap of faith, it's a suspending of judgment. You, 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 you work like a scientist, right? A scientist 
reserves judgment, but it doesn't mean they turn off their judgment. They turn on instead their observational skills. So I think, and I say this a lot, that there's an over emphasis in people's minds and over interest, an excessive interest in results. So all this talk about the benefits of meditation is, is really dangerous, not dangerous, it's really unhelpful. It's really a part of the problem, our focus on benefits. What's it going to give me? It's a part of what you can't be focused on if you want it to actually give you something. Kind of ironic, kind of not, kind of tricky, paradoxical. Makes things very tricky. But it's a part, that, that is an important part of the paradigm shift. Important part of the change in the way we look at things. Meditation is about changing the way I look at we look at things. Part of that change has to be our estimation of things like meditation or anything like meditation. We have to change from esteeming things, judging them based on their results or based on based on the results that we perceive as we practice them. Meaning, of course, meditation, is, the claim is that it does bring positive change, but there's no mystery behind that or no uncertainty or certainly no faith required to appreciate that. Because as the paradigm shift occurs, as you, you start to see things differently see things just as experiences and it's not even so much seeing them differently it's just seeing often for the first time like just focusing on your stomach I bet you never knew so much about what it's like for the stomach to rise and what it's like for the stomach to fall and the chaos and the variation and the uncertainty involved in that simple movement it's very unlikely that we had such knowledge, so it's not about seeing things differently per se, it's about seeing things more clearly. And that actual shift of, of clarity is what brings about the benefits. So, I mean, it brings about the benefits simply because of what it is to see clearly. Seeing clearly is different from reacting and judging. And so there's never a leap of faith. There's not any need or, or there's not any, any need to doubt. There's not any room to doubt the benefits. because you're cultivating and you're experiencing the clarity and 
the purity of mind, which is really the prime benefit in itself. So, so the best way to approach the practice is not in terms of what's it going to give me, but in terms of what's it like. When you practice in this way, what's it like? And you should hopefully see that it's quite pure. It's quite uh, clear in mind, quite objective in mind. And when you know that it's like that, you shouldn't have any reason to waver or doubt about what might come from that. It's unreasonable to, to suggest that clarity and purity of mind would ever lead to anything harmful or anything bad or anything but goodness and happiness. You don't really need faith for that. I'm starting to note in between the segments of walking and sitting meditation, for example, rising, hearing, falling, hearing. Is this correct, or am I not staying with the sensations? I would try, during the formal practice, I would try not to do that. Try to note the hearing until it goes away. And if after a long time it doesn't go away, then go back and start with the rising each time. just a little more focused that way. When returning to the stomach, should we note waiting while waiting for the rising? Yeah, that's a good note. You can also just note sitting, sitting. Many times the path seems to take away from pleasurable experiences that one equates with happiness. I find myself having resentment, doubts. Should I take them as doubt and anger or something else? That's what they are, doubt and anger. I mean, that's what we're trying to see. The, the, the problem isn't the pleasure. The problem is that when we don't get our pleasure, we're, we're whiny little wretches. We are not satisfied. We're not at peace. I want to see that. It's simulating this. We're simulating this by preventing ourselves from seeking out pleasure. When you force yourself to sit still or walk back and forth, you're testing yourself. And you'll see your, your, the reactions in the mind. It's very useful to see those because they're not going to... They're not a foreign element in our lives. They're a part of how we live our lives with resentment and doubt and confusion and judgment. Sometimes I feel I'm missing out on potential benefits since I very rarely note the rising and falling with continuity. I almost feel like I'm noting the stomach less as I continue. Do you have any advice? Well, try and always come back to the stomach. There's nothing special about it, but it is a good base object. So try and note something, and when that something's gone, if possible, try and come back to the stomach. It takes practice, and at certain stages you're going to be very distracted, so just be patient with that and note it as best you can.
A big part of our practice is catching things that we're forgetting to note, refining our practice, fine-tuning it. So try and be discerning there in terms of what you might be missing, catching when something is experienced and you didn't note it. The first book in our book, the first chapter in our booklet is probably the most important for this reason because it outlines various sorts of things you can be mindful of. Try not to forget any of them. When I manage to detach myself from worldly things, in a short time this attachment returns with much more intensity, as if they were avenging. What is this? Uh, how to prevent it? Well, part of it is our letting our guard down. So you become, through meditation practice, you become more uh, accepting, right? Ordinarily, we're wary and we are reactionary. And so through mindfulness, you become more relaxed, less tense, less stressed, less reactionary. And so our ordinary emotions, we're not prepared for them. Ordinarily, we're prepared to fight them or to engage in them or so on. When you're not ready to do that, you find yourself caught off guard. It's not a bad thing. It's just a challenge. So don't be discouraged by that. It's just your new situation, how you've situated yourself. And if you can stand and bear the onslaught of the emotions and the attachments, you'll find great benefit from it because there's nothing there's nothing behind the intensity. There's no meaning behind it as though this means something. This means that I should follow it or this means that I'm hopeless. There's nothing hopeless about attachment. It's never hopeless. It's just attachment. It's just something to, something you can take as an object, something to see clearly, something to understand. So it's not about preventing it. It's about dealing with it, living through it without clinging, seeing it clearly, understanding it. I used to get so calm in meditation that I could see all thoughts coming before they come. I have lost that ability and my mind is constantly so noisy now. Any advice? I'll be patient with that. So being calm can often be a habit or, or a, a, a res result of habits of mind that corral the mind into a calm state. And mindfulness doesn't really do that. So it opens the floodgates in many ways to chaos and disturbance. So mindfulness can actually instigate that because you're no longer working forcefully to corral the mind into a calm state. 
the 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 calmness isn't really the the ability i mean it's not an important ability if in in mindfulness practice a much better and more useful ability is the ability to be mindful of chaos because the chaos has causes there are reasons why the mind is chaotic and in turmoil they're not mindfulness but they're there and mindfulness is in fact doing a lot of or reordering because wisdom reorders, wisdom evaluates and filters. Wisdom adjusts the mind in, in by itself without any further action. So our observation of the chaos is an important part of the practice as the mind is, as the wisdom is allowed to refine the state of mind refine the quality of the mind and the habits of the mind noisy isn't a problem your your disliking of the noise that's the problem how do i become mindful of emotion of worry if it is intertwined with thoughts and I have trouble separating one from the other? Well, meditation is a challenge. You don't have to exactly separate them. You just have to recognize them and note one of them. Note whatever is clearest. It will, it will get easier to discern as you go along. That brings our tier one questions to an end, Bunte, and we've reached the hour. Wonderful. Good timing. Well, good good questions. Thank you all. Thank you for your help, Sahadu. Thank you all for joining. I have a meditator waiting for me here at our center, so I'm going to head off. I wish you all a good week. May the benefits of this session bring happiness and peace and freedom to all of us. Sadhu. Sadhu.